We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. We're going to be looking at Exodus 19 and 20 this morning. And Exodus 19 says this, verse 1. In the third month from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. That's the mountain that Moses lived upon. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. Let's pause there. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our spirits to hear your word, not just spoken to Moses and to the Israelites many years ago, but spoken to us now as your spirit is present here. And may we be transformed by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, I was working on our coffee roaster at Cultivate. Now, some of you know this has been a thorn in my side for a couple years now. We got this coffee roaster from Nogales. I went and picked it up. It roasted beautifully when I, when I tested it there. We brought it on a U-Haul. It's this giant, huge, like, couple thousand pound machine that does uh, 20 kilos of coffee at a time. If you don't know how much that is, it's because we're American. We use a different system of measurements, but it's a lot of coffee. And we brought it back, and like I did one roast at the shop, and it worked great. And then it just never worked again. And so we paid nine grand for it, which was actually a steal for coffee roasters. Like that's actually a really good price, but it's still nine grand. And we just, I, I've been working on it for a long time, fixing one thing after another, testing one thing, testing another, seeming like we're making some headway in one area and it starts working better. And then like something else seems to be the problem now. And then we seem to tackle that. And then, so this last week I was giving it one last shot. And I told Bethany, if this doesn't work, we're selling it and we're just gonna take out a loan and buy another coffee roaster. I don't, I don't even care anymore. Uh, and so I, I was there at night because it's pretty noisy machine. So it was after hours, after we closed down the shop, I was there by myself, the only one in that plaza working and working on the machine. And I replaced the burner tube because I thought this has to be, like this is the last thing I haven't done. This has to be it. I replaced the burner tube and it starts getting up to temperature. And I'm like, I think this is gonna work. I don't wanna jinx it, but I think it's gonna work this time. And then I pour some coffee in and it starts roasting it and it starts cooking it at the right speed that it should be cooking it. And I'm like, hallelujah, praise Jesus. I'm having a little mini worship like session there with just me and the Lord and some roasted coffee and it's a good time. And then suddenly it starts heating up fast, like super, super fast, faster than it should. And I look and the coffee is starting to burn. I'm like, oh man. So the good news is it roasted coffee. Bad news is I was too busy like 
worshiping, I didn't notice I was burning the coffee, right? And so I, I opened the hatch real quick to let it down into the cooling tray and out with the coffee, which was burning, came lots of smoke. So I let it out. I turned on the cooling tray. I turned off the propane. We have a roll-up door right next to it. So I rolled up the door to fan it out. I walk over to the front door to go unlock it and open that door to fan it out. And by the time I got to that front door and opened it, I saw the first fire truck coming into the parking lot. And I went out and his, the dude's coming out of the truck and I'm like, hey, false alarm, no fire. He doesn't even look at me. Hey, hey, there's no fire. Don't worry about it. They start rolling the hose off of the truck. Another fire truck, another fire truck. Six fire trucks came. They blocked off the intersection. They filled the parking lot. Three cop cars come. I'm like, you guys, I appreciate this. You got here quick. Like, that is really good to know. It's reassuring. There's no fire. Dude comes in with an ax. I'm like, oh, what's he going to chop up? And so they they just walk in, and a couple of them come in, and they look around, and they're like, so where's the fire? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I was like, hey, it was just the coffee. The coffee was smoking. I'm fanning it out. And they're like, oh, okay. I was like, so what happened? He goes, someone called it in, man. I was like, man, that was like quick. Like I'm the only light on, so they must have driven by at just the right time. And because it was the only light on, it was quick to spot. They called it in, but they saw smoke and it was alarming to them. And my smoke detector, the alarm was going off. And the whole point of this is that smoke can be alarming, right? See what I did there? Smoke alarm, anyway. Smoke can be alarming. What happens after God says this to his people, the part we read, is he goes, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to appear on this mountain in a thick cloud of smoke. And there's going to be thunder and lightning. It's going to be quite the scene. So I want you to prepare my people. I want you to let them know that I'm going to come in this thick cloud of smoke and they'll hear my voice speak to you. So they'll know that when you speak, you're speaking on my behalf and they'll trust you from now on. So prepare them. I want you to go and tell them to start just cleaning their clothes for like two days, two days straight. And on the third day, when their clothes are as clean as they can get them, they'll be pure enough to come and stand before my presence on that third day. And so God does that and he shows up and then he starts speaking to Moses and then all the people are super afraid. They're frightened. I mean, I, I would be a little bit too, right? Let's be honest. Would you be? Like, it just smoke all over filling the mountain. Do you remember when Moses met the Lord first on that mountain in that burning bush? And God showed up like that. And he was alarmed at first. He was scared. And then it starts speaking to him. Like, what is going on? And so the presence of God is this mighty, powerful, and even alarming thing. But... What's happening in that moment, God's presence is showing up to say, you're my people. I'm your God, and I'm here with you. And he starts off by giving them first. Before he tells them anything he wants them to do, how he wants them to live, he starts off by giving them a new identity. What did he say? He said in chapter 19, you will be my own possession, verse 5. Out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, verse six, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Who were they? They were slaves. Now who are they? Well, they're just wandering around in the wilderness, camping out, right? 
But he says, no, 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 you are now a kingdom. That alone right there, that word would have been reassuring, right? You are now a kingdom, your own people, not enslaved to Egypt anymore, but not just any kingdom. You're a kingdom of priests. And what was the priest's job? The priest's job was to mediate between the people and God as a representative. He's saying there's not just one priest out of you. Remember, God's plan for all of humanity was that we would partner with him and be his representatives. So he's saying this whole nation of people that I've called to be my own, you will all be this royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a royal nation representing me to the rest of the world. Who are you mediating with? If you're all priests, to the other nations, that the other nations would see me and know what I'm like through you, Israel, that they too would come to trust me. And so that's his starting place before he shows up in the smoke, before he shows up with this alarming scene, and before he gives what we now call the Ten Commandments. There were a lot more commandments after this. In fact, there's like 613 commandments given in the Old Testament. But we like to grab on to these first 10 here that we see. Uh, they, they seem to be something of significance because they're really helping to unlock, this is the type of people God is forming Israel to be. And it's not saying, hey, if you obey these rules, then I'll accept you. Then I'll save you. Then I'll welcome you in. Because what has God already done? Remember, I'm the God, he says, who bore you out of Egypt and slavery on eagle's wings. Freedom. Already saved you. You're my people. You're a royal priesthood. Now, do you want to know how to live in the best way possible? You've been told by Pharaoh and their gods how to live for generations, 430 years. Let me show you a better way to live. And this is where he gets into in chapter 20. So if you want to read with me, chapter 20, God shows up in the smoke. People are freaking out and Moses goes up. Chapter 20, verse one, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Remember, he's Going back, he's reminding them again. And so he says this, verse three, do not have other gods besides me. Do not have other gods besides me. Remember, in Egypt, they experienced, there was a power there. There was, there was some kind of spiritual darkness power there with the Egyptian gods they believed. We, we experience in our world, if we're honest with ourselves, that there's some kind of power things have over us, Right? Like there's this power over me when I'm scrolling through my phone endlessly and I can't seem to stop. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm not even seeing anything interesting and yet I can't put it down. We rationalize things in our modern Western world and in our mindset to just think like, oh man, I just gotta like have better practices and better habits and all that's true. But do you know that there's actually spiritual powers at work in this world that are in rebellion against God the same way humans who are called to partner with him have rebelled against him? God's saying, there, there's other powers out there you're gonna encounter. You're gonna come across other nations who serve these other gods. And you'll even see sometimes, it seems like they're getting ahead because of that. But I want you to know there's no other God ahead of me. There's no other God above me. There's no other God more powerful than me. And there's no other God who's gonna love you and save you the way I have. So that's one. 
No other gods but me. Verse four, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love, faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That one's a mouthful. And at first it sounds like he's just continuing that first thought, like don't have any other gods before me. Now don't fashion any idols, right? What would happen in those cultures and what they just came out of in Egypt and many of them brought these with them on their way out is they would actually carve by hand with their own hands, they would make these idols. And what an idol was, that word just simply means statue. It's a weird word we don't use in our language. I don't know why it doesn't get translated in here for us. It it means a statue, a representation. Why does God not want them to make statues, representations of any God, including himself? Because God already has representations of him. What did God say in the very beginning? Let us make man in our own image. God has fashioned living statues, humans, man and woman, you and I, to be his representatives. We already have a representation of who God is and what he's like in his people. He's going, don't, don't fall into this nonsense of, of making something with your own hands that then you can bow down to that represents some other God, or even that represents me. No, you are my people. You are my royal priesthood. You are my representation. So he starts with, remember me, who I am, and then now remember who you are. Isn't that good? Those are the first two. It's not too uh, oppressive, right? When we think about having rules and commandments, like what a word, commandments, and we go, oh man, how am I going to live up to this? Remember how, who God is, how good he is, and how powerful he is. And remember that you were made to represent him. So far, so good. The third one, verse seven, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. You might have another translation. What is it? Do not use the Lord's name in vain, right? Yeah. What does that mean? What did you grow up thinking that meant? Maybe we still, what was that? OMG. Don't drop the OMG, right? If you do, add an SH at the end. Oh my gosh. And it's okay. Don't, don't say the word God in a way that you're not praying, right? And that, that's always how I was, I, I was taught to do that. That's how I grew up. Like, this is what it means to use the Lord's name in vain. If something would happen, I would like drop a vase when I was a kid. And I'd be like, oh my God. And then my dad would be like, what did you just say? You know, <laughs> you didn't care about the vase. We cared about. So don't use the Lord's name in vain. And listen, I, I, think, I think that's important. Like the, the Israelites, they wouldn't even write down the full name that God gave him he gave to Moses of who he is. They, that's where we get uh, the YWHW, if you've seen that, Yahweh. Uh, it's, it's actually dropping out like the vowels and just using like a shorthand version of what God said his name is. So there's a reverence to God's name, right? But I love this interpretation here. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave any unpunished who misuses his name. 
Uh, but there's another, there's a better translation of that that actually says, do not carry the Lord's name with you in vain. Do not miscarry the Lord's name with you. What God had just said is, I'm your God, you're my people, you represent me, don't do it wrong. You see how this flows together? Don't do it wrong. Don't misrepresent me to the nations. Don't misrepresent my name. This is what, in, in this culture, that was what that name meant. Like when you carried a name with you, it was like you carried the name of your household, of your father and his father and, and the patriarchs before you. You carried that with you. You represented them. And God's saying, do not misrepresent me. You are my true representatives to the world. How are they gonna do that? Let's keep going. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. All right, so remember who God is? Know that you're his representatives. Don't misrepresent him. Here's how. First rule, take a break. Take a day off. Sounds like a super oppressive God with all these rules, right? These people just came out of slavery where they were overworked, forced, harsh labor. And God says, here's what I want you to do. Take a day off. How freeing, how liberating. Take a break. And he reminds them, hey, this, remember all the way back in creation, the story of how you even got here. What did God do? In six days, he created everything. And on the seventh day, what did he do? He Sabbathed. That word means he stopped. He paused. Many theologians say a, a way of reading it is he settled in to what he had made, to the work he had accomplished. And that's when he says, man, this is good. Seven times. This is very good. He settles into it. He rests there and he enjoys it. God's saying, you're made in my image. You're my representatives. I want you to also do labor for six days. I want you to contribute your, the work of your hands to this world, to this society. I want you to care for one another with your work. I want you to, to care for the world around you with your work. I want you to create and build things that will last and sustain. And then I want you to settle in and enjoy the goodness of my creation. Enjoy the fruits of your own labors because that's what I'm like. Did God need a rest after six days? Was he tired? This is God. This is the God who could speak and things would just grow out of nowhere, right? This is a God who forms the first man out of mud from the ground and then just breathes his breath into it and suddenly it's a human walking around. Like he didn't need a break. What he was doing was settling into the goodness of what he made and enjoying it and being present there. And he's saying, I want you to do the same. And listen, we're, we're not God, so we do need a break. We're finite beings, not infinite. We're not Duracell that keeps going and going and going. Or is that the Energizer Bunny? I don't know. But we need to be recharged. And who do we get recharged by? 
the one who made us. That seventh day is a time for us to pause, settle in, enjoy the goodness of God's world and to go, God, I need your power and your strength to go another six days. Our culture doesn't do this well. Our culture is all about the grind and the hustle, right? It's all about working hard, stay hustling so that we can prove ourselves, so that we can climb to the top, so that we have something to show for ourselves, so that we can build a name for ourselves. That sounds familiar earlier on in the story too, doesn't it? But God said, no, you're my representatives. You are representing my name, not building a name for yourself. Settle into me, find rest in me, and know that I will take care of everything. So when they were doing agricultural work in this day, and they planted seed into the ground, they tilled the soil, which was hard work, and they planted the seed, but they go to bed, and what can they do to cause the seed to grow? Not a thing. They can't make the water fall from the sky They can't make the sun shine on it. They can't make the seed sprout and produce, but God does the ultimate work. God's saying, rest in me. Remember, I'm the one who created all things, and then you will be recharged. So who is God? Who are you? His representatives? Don't misrepresent him. Rest in him. So far, pretty good. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I love using this one with my sons. Boy, honor your father so you'll have a long life because it's going to get cut short if you don't. I don't really say that to them. I'm kidding. Uh, Seems like a weird, like, sharp left turn out of nowhere, right? So this is who God is. This is who you are. Don't misrepresent me. Rest in me. Also treat your parents well. Why? Because in that household, who is representing God to the children? I mean, in a perfect world, when it's done well. Now, probably 80% of us sit in this room right now and said, ah, that wasn't my experience, right? It wasn't my experience because we live in a broken, fallen world where we have people trying to build a name for themselves instead of building a name for the Lord, where we have people trying to work to prove themselves instead of resting in the Lord, where we have people misrepresenting who God is to even their children. And that selfishness, selfishness and wickedness that Egypt showed to Israel, that Israel showed to one another and to the other nations, as we'll continue on in the story to see, exists in you and I too. And it exists in your parents. But... God's saying, when you're younger, what I want you to do to display what I'm like is to willingly submit yourself to those who are in authority over you. To honor is that submission, but then also he's speaking to older people. When you get older, to honor is to also care for. Because what happens in life cycles? You are young and your parents were the ones wiping your bottoms. And one day that's going to reverse, right? Because we all come to the end of ourselves. Our strength is limited. Taking that Sabbath maybe helps for a while. But over time, your battery is going to run out. You can't beat time. No one ever has. And your body will start to decay because of the brokenness of sin that has brought death into this world. And God says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Care for them in that old age. 
be there for them, care for them. And that's hard to do, especially when you had parents who did not care for you well when you were younger, right? But what God's trying to do is set up this ideal. This is what this kingdom of priests is to look like. If you're representing me to the rest of the world, then parents should be loving and caring for their children well and representing what God's like to them. And if this is the nation that's representing God to the rest of the world, then those children, then when those parents get into old age, should not just keep trying to build their own careers and make a name for themselves, but care for those who are aging. We have in our society what we call the forgotten generation, don't we? Because there's a whole generation of people who are in homes, not the homes that their families reside in, but homes that are set aside from society and forgotten by their own families. We, we had a, a missional community who was serving one of those homes for a while before COVID hit, and it's like they, they don't hear from their own children, their own family members, but the church was showing up and listening to them. So listen, this, this is less about, you need to call your mom up today. Uh, maybe you should, I don't know. This is more about how are we caring for the forgotten in our society? How are we representing what this God is like who cares for those who are forgotten? That's what we're called to. And, and on this one, it seems like such a departure, but this is one where like right away just popped out to me like, man, this is where I see Jesus so clearly. Darren and I were talking this week, actually, I think it was with Darren. Uh, Jesus, like one of the first things he does is, is the first like miraculous thing that he does where people see it is at a wedding, his mom's like, hey, they're running out of wine and that's gonna bring shame onto them. Do something, because she knows his power. And what does he do? He, he turns jugs of water into the best wine they've ever tasted. I love this. Jesus is a partier. I would love to party with him one day. We're going to. That's good news. He turns it into the best wine that they've ever tasted. And he wasn't going to do it. He tells her, hey, this isn't my time. I'm not supposed to reveal my power to anybody yet. And she's like, come on, son. Would you do this for me? And he does it because it's his mom. And he loves her. And he honors her. Honoring his mother. But, and this is, this is an this is an earthly woman, a regular woman. He's the son of God. Like he's the master and he honors her. He does what she asks. And we see him honor his father. He honors his, his earthly father, Joseph, in many ways. Uh, one, because like biologically, he's not even his dad. And yet he still listens to him growing up as a child. But then he honors his true father, his heavenly father. God, the creator of all things, by doing the ultimate sacrifice. What does Jesus say in that garden? He's like, I don't want to do this. God, if there's any other way, would you take this from me? He knows he's about to go to the most painful thing he's ever experienced, to endure death on a cross. But he knows it's the Father's plan. And he says, not my will, your will. So Jesus submits himself to his mom, and to his father. And ultimately, this is what this is calling us to. Hey, you're my representatives, God says. Submit yourselves and honor me as your father. Let's keep going. This is where it gets really fun. Verse 13, do not murder. Seems like an easy one, right? Has anyone, 
We do, do we have any murders in here? We can keep going. Okay. Do not, do not murder. Like, it seems like a simple rule. Who's giving this to the people right now? God spoke it to who? To tell the rest of the people. Moses, right? Do you remember what Moses did earlier on in the story? Moses goes out. He sees that the Israelites are being treated harshly by some Egyptians, and he kills one of the Egyptian men. Can you imagine being in Moses' shoes right now or in his sandals? And like, all right, God, you want me to go tell them not to murder? Oh, they're not going to listen to me on that one. <laughs> like, who am I? Again, same question. Who am I? It doesn't matter who you are. I'm with you. God is setting up a society where people are caring for one another and that people would flourish together. And murder is no part in that. And that seems obvious, but Jesus has something to say about this too. When he was standing on a mountain thousands of years after this, and he goes, hey, listen, you've read in the book, you've read in my word, you've read, don't murder other people. But I say to you, walking around thinking you're all great because you've never killed anybody, thinking you're better than other people. Every time someone cuts you off on the freeway and you're like, that, ah, you want to do something to them in your heart. Every time your brother or your sister takes one of your toys, right? Every time your kids won't listen to you and you just get so angry with them. Every time your spouse says something to you. Every time a friend of yours who is supposed to be there for you, and, but they do something selfish. And you get so angry inside. Jesus says that if you have anger in your heart against a brother or a sister, I'm telling you, that's the same thing. It's like you've already committed that murder. He goes on with, with the rest of these. Do not commit adultery. That means be faithful to the person that God has called you to be in a committed relationship with or that you've made that choice to be in a committed relationship with. Do not commit adultery. Do not step out on that person. And Jesus goes, hey, you heard it said this, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you even look at another person who's not your committed partner, your wife, he's speaking to men, but it's the same for women. If you look at another man, if you look at this other person with lust in your heart, you have already sinned against them and you've sinned against me. Jesus seems like he's making these things harder, doesn't he? Man, I was doing pretty good. Until Jesus showed up and like started changing things on me. But he's not changing things. What he's doing is he's getting to the heart of what this was all about in the first place. God is creating a people who would be distinct from the rest from the people who are trying to build a name for themselves and serve themselves, he's going, no, show the world what I'm like and how good I am. And doesn't it go better for you when you're not angry? Doesn't it go better for you when there's not violence? Doesn't it go better for you when people are committed and faithful? Doesn't it go better for you when you're not stealing from one another? That's the next one, spoiler alert. Doesn't that go better for you? But we don't do that. In our heart, we still desire to build a name for ourselves and we desire things for our own selfish gain. Thank God Jesus didn't show up and only do that sermon on the mountain and peace out, right? So the next one, do not steal. If you even look at something your neighbor has and you want it. That's where he's going next. Verse 16, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't lie. Don't lie about others. 
Again, seems like, why would you lie about your neighbor, right? But hey, think about when I was a kid, there's six of us. It was really easy just to point the blame to one of the other ones because they didn't know. It's like, hey, who, who, just, who just like ate the last of the cookies? And we're like, it was that one. Which one? I don't know. It's one of those five. It wasn't me. Just that general direction. Just don't think it was me, right? <laughs> like how easy is, is it for us to just pass the blame? when stuff starts getting hard. When your boss finds out like, so, hey, hey, what happened here, right? And it's easy just to kind of tell a little white lie. Where, where did that even come from, white lie? I'd have to do some research and I don't know. But a lie is a lie. I'm just gonna tell a little fib just so that like, I don't have to deal with this right now. My kid asks a question, like, I'll just tell them a little white lie to pacify them for now, right? God's saying, hey, I'm a God of truth. Speak the truth to one another in love and in gentleness. That's in here later on in the New Testament. Speak the truth to one another. You don't have to lie because you don't have to fear. That's what happens. I I lie because I'm afraid of the repercussions if you know the truth about me. So I'm just going to tell you a little distorted version of the truth. And God doesn't want a distorted version of his creation. He wants the real thing and its fullness because that's what he said is good. And you don't have to fear when people see that distorted version of you. Like, I'm, I'm sorry to bring it back. I'm super thankful you guys shared that. You don't have to fear what other people think about when you share like, hey, we had, we had some issues, right? Because one, the rest of us have issues too. But two, you know that there's a God of grace who sees you both and loves you just as you are. And you model that for us when you share that. Thank you. We don't have to hide. We don't have to fear because we have a God who has already brought you out of slavery into freedom and made you his own possession, his own chosen people, his own royal priesthood. And then finally, verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What God has given you is enough. I'm not coveting anyone's ox or donkey. I can tell you that. But, but if you're like me and you see posts on Instagram and you start thinking, man, I wish I had a vacation there. Man, I wish I worked out like that person. Man, I wish I could eat healthier like that person. Man, their life seems so great on all those posts, right? Social media has trained us to covet, to envy to be jealous of other people, to what's going on in their lives. But God has placed you specifically right where he has in this time and place for a reason. He wants to partner with you to do work with you to spread his good word and his good news to the world around you. You don't have to covet where other people are at in life. Man, I I just wish I was better at this like this person. No, no, no. God made you a distinct representative of what he's like because this other person is showing another side of what God's like, but people need to see God through you. God made you in his image. Yeah, but that other person has a little more of his image. No, no, no. God made you in his own image. You are his special possession. You are part of his royal priesthood. If you're in Jesus. Did you catch that last caveat? 
you're in Jesus. Because the rest of the story is, the Israelites, how good do you think they do at this? Not very good. Remember we said smoke is alarming? Read with me real quick. Verses 18 and 19. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains surrounded by smoke. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. And then Moses goes on to try to reassure them, listen, God wants to move toward you and be close to you. This is so that you'll see how great and powerful he is and not turn away from him. But they go, no, 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 we're turning away anyway. It's too scary. Don't let him talk to us anymore. Don't let him show himself near us anymore. You talk to us. We'll listen to you. But then what happens later? They start getting thirsty in the wilderness and they start turning against Moses too. And I know sometimes the things that God's calling us into can seem scary. It can seem alarming. And we want to run away and we want to back off because this is a little more familiar. This is a little more comfortable. I can control this over here, so we think. But God is wanting to move near you and toward you. And actually, when we see his power in the fire, in the smoke, we're reminded that this powerful God is not here to crush us and to burn us. He's here because he just set us free. He's here to move toward us, to be with us. And so thank God that this identity God gave them before the rules, before the commands, you are a royal priesthood, my chosen people, my special possession, a kingdom of priests, that this carries on even when Israel fails to represent it. What God does is he goes, okay, fine. Remember how he, he would choose one and go, fine, here's one representative. I want you to go and show the rest how to do it. He continues this process. And when none of them are good enough and none of them are faithful enough, God becomes that one. That God himself comes down in the form of a man and becomes an Israelite. And the remnant of Israel as the Old Testament describes it, the, the one Israelite who would actually be faithful in partnering with what the Father wanted is Jesus. And because of the work of Jesus, because he fully enters into this partnership with God and follows all of these commands perfectly, not just outwardly, but actually with a heart of desiring for God's name to be known, for others to see how good this God is, does it perfectly. And because of that, we see Peter write in 2 Peter. I think uh, we have the verse up there, Patrick. Sorry, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is now Peter talking to not just Israelites. He's talking to Israelites and he's talking to Gentiles. Those were, that was a word used for anybody but Israelites. The other nations God always wanting this kingdom of priests to show how good God is to the rest of the world so they would come in. And now he's saying, Peter's writing, because of what Jesus has done to this mixed group of people from multiple nations, diverse community, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, the same words God used, a, whole, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, Listen to this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Why, why were, was Israel not a people? They were slaves to another people. Why were you and I not a people? We were slaves to our own sin and selfishness. But now we are God's people, his representatives. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just to show us this is not a one-off. The same words used in Exodus, Peter writes in the New Testament, and then we also get a vision of in the very renewal of all things in that final act of restoration. Revelation chapter one says this, verses five and six. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the reason we exist. Because we have a good God who's called us to be his representatives and wants us to rest in that identity. It's the first three commands he starts with. Know who I am. Know who you are because of me. Rest in that truth. Now go live like it's true. And you and I are invited into that by the work of Jesus. Not because we worked hard. By the work of Jesus. Entering into our pain and our suffering and being faithful. Dying the death we deserve and then rising again. His power overcoming sin and death, and Satan, and anything else that's working against us in this world. If we're in Jesus, that means if we trust in Jesus, we have that power too. So pray with me that we would actually walk and live in that power as we leave this place.